Happy New Year! I'm Mike Overstreet, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to E3, and I'm actually just going to jump right into things today. You see, every New Year, I try to find an image or a symbol that I want to carry into the year with me. It's usually something that's a combination of a few things. It's a combination of something that reminds me of where I've been in the last year. Maybe successes or failures that I've found that I want to learn from. It includes also where I am currently, what's going on in my life, what, are, what is my current state of being. And then lastly, it includes something that I hope I can remember as I move through the coming months of a new year. And this year, as I was trying to figure that out, I kept coming back to this practice I've learned about called kintsugi. Has anyone here heard of this, kintsugi? Got a couple. So if you don't, we can walk through it a little bit. It's this Japanese art form. It's a practice of repairing broken ware. So things like pots or plates or cups with gold. It's this idea that when you break something like a plate, you take the pieces back together and then with gold liqueur, you meld it and you highlight and accentuate where the cracks used to be. And it's this really cool form of repairing objects. We have a couple of examples. So this is like a vase, right? So as you can tell, it's where it broke along these lines and they put it back together. I think the next one is a bowl. I like that one. I'd buy that. Um, <laughs> and the last one is actually my favorite, where they use like this clearer form of gold that the light inside of it can actually shine out of, right? I mean, this is just a beautiful way of repairing objects that is, quite frankly, very alien to us in the West, right? We usually, when we break a bowl, it's no longer capable of being a bowl in our mind, so we just throw it away. But in this practice, they go through this work of putting it back together again. And as I sat with this, I think I was drawn to it. More than this is beauty, I was drawn to the philosophy that I saw behind it. You see, I think built into this, again, is something that's very alien to us in America. There's this belief that the breakage and repair are crucial parts, not mistakes, in the history of an object. It's this belief that when something breaks, that doesn't make it useless. In fact, it's to be expected. And thus, we ex experience this breaking as a part of the ongoing story of it. They highlight, accentuate, and celebrate the cracks because it shows how that object was transformed over the course of its life. I think this is just a powerful way, again, that is totally outside usually how we think about something that's broken, that's supposed to be celebrated as it becomes something new. And it struck me because I think in the West, in America, we are often told the opposite is true about our brokenness. I believe that in our culture, we live in a time, in a space, in a zeitgeist that tells us that losing breaking and falling down are the worst possible enemies we could experience as human beings. We live in a culture that quite frankly tells us that to fail is to die, which means that weakness of any kind is to be avoided, denied, shamed, rejected at all costs. And what's interesting, why I kept coming back to this, is that the heart of Jesus' teachings and the gospel story, I find an understanding of brokenness that is very different than that, and far more like this idea of kintsugi. You see, when I read Jesus' gospel, what I find is this radical, unflinching conviction at the center of it that somehow 
In God's reality, death is followed by resurrection. It's his unflinching conviction that our dying is somehow the very pathway through which we find new life in who we were created to be. And I believe that's powerful because what I get out of that is that for Jesus in the gospel, this reality has created a radically upside down way of seeing our brokenness, our failures, and our moments of falling down. See, in Jesus' story, we can see them not as things to be denied, hidden, or shamed, but somehow as the very pathways that God wants to make us into something new. In other words, somehow, as Jesus' disciples, we can be a Kintsugi people, a people who come like Jesus did to experience their own moments of coming undone as the very moments when they are actually being remade into who they were supposed to be. And that is something I think we should carry into the new year. I, see no be- I can think of no better symbol or vision for what I want to hold on to as I journey through the coming months, because I don't know about you, but this year has had moments in which I've been broken. This year has had moments in which I have fallen down and failed. There are parts of me that were shattered. And to enter a new year with a story that tells me from that breaking, I can find newness. I mean, that is how I want to begin. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to remember and explore what it means to understand brokenness, weakness, falling down, the moments when we come undone in this upside-down gospel story of Jesus. Remembering who we are as Kintsugi people, as disciples who can declare that they were undone to be remade by a God of resurrection. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin with our first series of the new year, the series called Undone, where we're going to explore what it means to see brokenness in a new way as Jesus' disciples. We are also going to look at what it means for the church as a community of disciples, as a community of Kintsugi people to hold this gospel vision of brokenness and remaking in itself, reflecting on E3's own moments of falling down our own moments of breaking, our community's own moments of failure, not for shame, but so we can look forward to the path that God is leading us on, the path of being remade, resurrected, made new with divine gold of grace. Amen? Amen. As I believe that the vision of church on the other side of that process is a community sold out to being a place for anyone who finds themselves like we have all been undone and ready and longing to be remade. Ready to go on that journey with me? Awesome. We're going we're gonna to dive into it. See, I'm super excited about this series because I just think it gets to the core of the Christian life. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to start with this idea of being an upside-down gospel view of brokenness itself. We need to start with the very claim. And I want to explore it through one of my favorite pieces of scripture from the New Testament, this book called 2 Corinthians. And it has a text that I think provides an instructive image for what this gospel vision of brokenness and weakness actually looks like. Now, as usual, to understand this text, I'm going to have to briefly walk through some of the context, because the context, in particular for what we're talking about today, is super important for understanding what the author is trying to say. 
So for those who don't know, 2 Corinthians is actually a letter written by this guy named Paul. Now, Paul is a super important figure in the Bible, the New Testament. He was essentially the first Christian missionary. He was one of the first people who left from Jerusalem and went about basically planting churches, starting new communities, and growing this Christian movement that had come after Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of his central roles, what he really devoted his life to, was shepherding these new small communities in these various cities around the Near East. And he would do this often by writing letters. So as part of his role as a shepherd, he would write these letters where he would encourage these communities. He would teach these communities. Sometimes he would correct these in communities, and he would give them advice and guidance as they've tried to navigate what it means to be a Christian in the world. And we have a couple of these letters, and they comprise a large chunk of the New Testament. And that is exactly what 2 Corinthians is. It is the second of two letters written to a church in this city called Corinth, the members of which are called Corinthians. Some light bulbs just turn on to some people who are flipping over the Bible. But yeah, so this is what it is. It's a letter where he, Paul is seeking to guide and help this community of Corinthians. And what's important for today is that we need to understand that the church of Corinth was a hot mess. I mean, it was a dumpster fire. It is some of the harshest language you will ever see Paul use when addressing a church in the New Testament because it was just all over the place. In particular, what we can tell from these letters is that it was a deeply fractured community, especially along lines of socioeconomic power and status that it had adopted from the surrounding Roman culture. You see, in Roman culture, strength and power and might was the defining feature of where you lived in your hierarchy in the world. And thus, it determined everything. If you were weaker than someone else, you were not on the same level, you did not associate, you did not spend time together. It ran their entire world, this understanding of strength. And what we can tell is that it had bled, this attitude had bled into the church at Corinth, that the church itself had become obsessed with strength and superiority within how it ran its community. In particular, what we find in 2 Corinthians is that this obsession with worldly strength had led the community to fall into factions led by toxic leaders. We read that this group called the super apostles, which by the way, if you start calling yourself a super apostle, you're probably far outside the Christian lifestyle. Just saying that, we could talk about that over coffee. But anyway, it's not a good start. It's this group called the super apostles, and they had risen to prominence in the church by appealing to these Roman notions of strength through this really interesting thing. It was this ancient practice called boasting. Now, we, we use the word boasting. We usually think of it as kind of when we talk about ourselves, when we brag, right? It's a different thing in Roman culture in the ancient world. You see, boasting was a common form and format of writing, orating, and declaring lists of a person's accomplishments and strengths. It's like an ancient practice and philosophical practice of resume building. If you wanted to be someone with influence, if you wanted to be a leader, you would develop something called a boast, which would highlight why you are deserving of it, why you are powerful, why you are strong, right? And then you would orate it, you would declare it, you would give it to the people trying to earn their confidence. And it was mostly used by politicians and philosophers to win over crowds, to win over followers, and to basically highlight their strength and excesses. So, a typical boast would include things like a list of victories over rivals. It might have military accomplishments, you know, the peoples that Rome had defeated through your leadership. 
It often had things like prestige or medals, moments in which your glory shone. And they would put these together and they would use them to argue for their strength over and against an enemy, a rival, or an opponent, highlighting how they are strong and that opponent is weak, thus earning from the people power and followers. And this is important for today because what we can learn from 2 Corinthians is that the super apostles had begun to use this boasting strategy to undermine Paul's leadership in the community. We can tell that they had publicly begun attacking him for his weakness and failures while boasting about their own strengths and successes, all for one purpose, to promote themselves as the true, rightful leaders and teachers of that community in Corinth. From what we can gather, in 2 Corinthians, they had begun mocking Paul's poverty, his low social status, his public speaking skills, even his physical appearance, saying that he was this scrawny, weak-looking man who was in no way deserving to be a leader, basically targeting all these things that their world said were weaknesses and thus were signs that he was a weak disciple of Jesus and a weak leader, and he did not deserve influence as compared to them. Attacking Paul while boasting of their own strengths, successes, perfections, lack of failures as evidence of their superior spiritual strength and closeness to the God of Jesus. Thus evidence that they were the rightful leaders of this community. And this is what we find behind the scenes in 2 Corinthians. And it's a precarious situation because we can tell from the letter that this boasting had been working that the community was actually starting to go against Paul, that it started to fracture, it started to become opposed to this man who had been guiding the church and following the super apostles. So Paul must respond. The health, the life of this community is on the line in this moment because these people are just trying to use this community for power. So Paul gives his response in chapter 11, and it is pure gold. I love it. You see, scholars argue that this section that we're about to read is written in the same format of Roman boasting, that he basically writes out his own boast in response. And he begins as we would expect. We read that he starts out with, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. Again, this is what a boast would look like. This is what we should expect. He's listing all these things and laying them out as reasons for why he is not just better than them at this, but he's actually more deserving of their influence because of these things. It's his resume that he's dropping on them, one-upping them, and all these claims that they've been dropping on. But this is where it gets interesting. Because from here, we should be moving into the part of the boast where Paul starts laying out his evidence for his claims. He should start walking through why he is successful, glorious, strong, these reasons that show that he is the better man. And as Paul moves into his list of evidence, he turns things entirely upside down. This is fascinating. He continues, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. 
Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashings minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers. I have been in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is Paul's boast. This list about who he is, why he deserves influence, what he wants to be known for. He lays out the times he's been built in and imprisoned as a criminal. The times he's been shipwrecked, stranded, left totally helpless. The times he has toiled, gone without sleep, been hungry, destitute, homeless, totally exposed, cold and naked, utterly alone. And I cannot express how upside down this would be for his audience in a Roman culture. Everything he listed here would be demeaning and degrading for someone in Roman society who said that they had strength or status. I mean, these are literally the very things the super apostles would have used as evidence for why he was weak and shouldn't be listened to. In other words, Paul responds to accusations of his weakness and failures by making them known in a list of his own declaration. He says, you call me an inferior disciple because of my failures and weaknesses. Well, let me show you them in a little more detail. I mean, this is so upside down. This is so backwards, right? It's like if we got into a roast battle and someone was like, Mike only wears plaid shirts, his sermons are way too intense, he yells too much, and he has Justin Bieber's haircut from five years ago. And I said, Yep, that's true. Good one, guys. Oh, and here's five other things that you could use to make fun of me. Let me help you out. Do you think I win that roast battle? No, I would guess not. I mean, this doesn't make sense. Paul says, you want to know why I'm a true disciple of Jesus? Let me show you the evidence of the very things you tell me are my shame, my failures, my humiliations, the times of my life when I was most broken, weak, and undone. That's my evidence for why I am a disciple of Christ. I think for Paul, we learn something powerful here. You see, for Paul, the design of a disciple of Jesus is found not in their ability to hide and deny their brokenness, but rather in their ability to boast in their undoing. A few verses later, Paul tells us, why he can say that so confidently. He describes the deepest brokenness of his life, and he says that in it he hears this from God. It is beautiful. We read, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I 
am strong. This is not a man that looks at the breaking of himself and sees shame. This is a person that looks at all of it through one lens, death and resurrection. This is a man that looks at his failures. And he says, that's not the moment I should be ashamed of. Those are the moments I should rejoice in because they were the moments that finally led me to die so I could be resurrected. Those moments of falling down, of breaking, were actually the moments where I learned to let go for the first time. When I learned to be broken enough to actually let God take not just a part of me, but all of me, and to do what he had always wanted to do, remake him stronger and healed and new in a way that he never was strong enough to do for himself. I see this, and I see someone who knows that they were broken to be pieced back together again with the divine gold of God's grace. You see, in other words, I think Paul is truly a kintsugi person. He has found himself in the story of Jesus, the story of a God who died and rose again, and he has learned to understand the moments of his weakness, his breaking, his falling down as his Lord does, as Christ does, as painful but necessary. Because what he has learned is that in the upside-down gospel of Jesus, breaking is not the end of our story, but it is, in fact, the way that we begin it. That we would never have left home, we would never have changed until something broke us enough to realize we needed to do so. I mean, I think what Paul realizes is that these moments of undoing can be understood as the necessary moments of dying that we all must experience before we find resurrection on the other side. And in that story, in that grace, Paul says we can rejoice because we have found a new kind of strength, the new power, not of this Roman strength, but of surrender of learning to rely on something bigger and outside of ourselves, something we never would have done if left to our own devices. Learning to let go and truly say and believe his grace and power are sufficient for me. Because we have faith that the undoing in the story of Jesus is always followed by remaking and resurrection and new life on the other side of what we so terrifyingly called death. That is the radical, subversive, and upside-down conviction of brokenness that I find in Jesus. And I believe that when we find it in ourselves, when we truly believe this, I think it changes everything. I think it changes how we understand our own stories. I think it changes how we see the broken people in our world. I think it changes how we respond to brokenness in our world not as something to be hated or rejected, but as the very moments in which if we engage it in a Christ-like way, we can see this world remade. I think that we believe this. We call ourselves disciples of God, which means that we must commit ourselves to finding it in ourselves, in our world, in our hearts every year in this new year. We have to commit ourselves to believing this so we may truly call ourselves disciples and members of his church a Kintsugi people in a Kintsugi community. And I refuse to ask anyone to go somewhere I won't, 
Whether it's self-reflection, confession, or growth, I am not interested in the world's vision of strength that the American church, the American culture, so often tells me I need to believe in as a pastor, that I need to be perfect, that I need to not be human, that I'm not in this with you. I refuse to be a pastor on a pedestal. Whether I want to be or whether people want to put me on one, I just won't. So, if I may, E3, allow me to be a fool for but a moment. Allow me to boast. You see, for much of my life, I dedicated myself to making my own identity and persona in the world. It was this little bull that I learned to call Mike. And it had all of the things that I was so proud of. And I knew it was my bull because I had made it by my will and my own strength. I had willed it into creation. And I was able to look at this bull and boast in all the ways that my world told me I should. I looked at this bull and it was popular. It was a natural leader. It was charismatic. It could always make people laugh. It could always somehow convince you to do the thing that you didn't want to do before you started talking. It was always in a romantic relationship. It always had friends. It always had Justin Bieber's haircut. <laughs> it was smart and it was successful because it had an ironclad work ethic and it was devoted for striving for greatness, which led it to graduate from the University of Florida Go Gators with two degrees, <laughs> with two degrees and a 4.0 GPA and a rock solid career path in front of me. I had all of these accomplishments and strengths to boast in, and yet, just below the surface of this bowl, this thing I called Mike, there were these imperfections that my world told me not to boast in. You see, there were things about my bowl that would make it weak and inferior in the eyes of this world, that would make it not what it was created to be, I was told. I had these weak spots in the clay that had somehow got into it from the beginning. Small and unseeable weaknesses baked into it. Below the surface, there were these insecurities about who I was, if I was good enough, if I was lovable, if I actually mattered in this world. But more than that, over the course of this bull's life, it had started to develop some unseen cracks. And I would put water in it, and it would just seep out Anything I did would seep through these cracks some way, somehow. And these areas of my life were the ones that my world told me I had to deny and reject and to just will away at all costs. Things I couldn't acknowledge or name because if I did, it would make them real. And if they were real, then this bowl was useless. Things like deep-seated anger and control issues grounded in a deep fear of suffering. That if I suffered... It was because I didn't control enough of my life, and that's when everything goes wrong. Cracks, like deeply broken patterns of relationship grounded in using and hurting people over and over again because I had a deep-seated terror of abandonment. I was always so sure that people would leave me, they would abandon me, because if they got close to me, they would see me like I saw myself, and they would leave. So I just left them first. I had crippling and undiagnosed depression that ravaged my internal world until I learned to cope with it with addiction and self-medication. These things drove me, whether I named them or not, which I didn't, 
Because the name such things would be to admit weakness. It would be to fail. It would be to watch this persona, this bull I called Mike that I was so proud of making that people patted me on the back over. It would mean that it might die. And I just couldn't let that happen. So I did what we all do, right? I hid it. I buried it. I put it in an armor of any kind. I did whatever I could to hide it, deny it, ignore it. And I learned to cope with it because I had a phrase that we're probably all a little too familiar with. I'm fine. I can just will myself through this too. I can rely on my own strength because that is what I have always done. And why would I try something else? <sighs> There's a problem with that. Because inevitably, there comes a moment when our strength utterly fails. For me, there came a moment when I tried with all my will, all my might, all my strength to make something go my way, and I still watched it fail in the end. I did everything I could, and it still fell apart. For me, it was this escalation of addiction and depression. It was the self-destruction of my most cherished relationship. It was watching that career path evaporate when I just didn't do what I needed to do because I was so dang depressed. And I don't know. That's mine. But it might be different for you. It might be death, grief, divorce, a rock bottom of addiction. It might be retirement, unemployment, losing your job. All of us, no matter what it is, have this moment where something comes along and for the first time it is big enough, it is painful enough, that no matter what we do, we cannot stop it or will it away by our own strength. I know for me, it came along and it was big enough, it was painful enough, I couldn't deny it, I couldn't ignore it, I couldn't control it, I couldn't will it to stop and it came along and... first time in my life, I found myself truly broken and shattered, truly undone. And no amount of charm, intellect, strength, willpower was going to change this, was going to stop this, was going to fix this. All those cracks that I had been convinced were never real suddenly became the very lines on which my entire life broke because they were always there. And this just made them impossible to hide anymore. And I don't know. I don't know if any of you have been in this space, but you, you kind of don't know what to do because you've never been there before. So like for me, I just at first, I tried to do what I'd always done. I tried to will it back to the way it was. I tried to put it back together again. I tried to use my strength to like balance it, but I kept cutting myself on the pieces I kept realizing that I had lost some pieces. I kept realizing that some of them were too small to save. It was never going to go back to the way it was. So then I tried to ignore it. I tried to just act like it was okay, but I couldn't do that anymore because every time I came into contact with someone, they got cut too. This brokenness just overflowed into my world, and I found myself quickly realizing I can't put it back together. It won't be the way it was. My strength can't. Fix this. I mean, I don't really know how to describe it if you've never been there. All I can say is it felt like the undoing of everything that I thought I was and ever could be because it felt a lot like dying. Like this thing 
that I had called me my entire life was dead, gone. And I didn't know what to do anymore. And at that rock bottom, when I had become the person that I had told myself a thousand times I would never be that kind of person, when I had no other options, when my, fail, my strength failed me, like Paul, I finally had to reach out to something bigger than myself. For the first time in my entire life, I was forced to admit what we all try to avoid saying, I can't do this on my own. I am broken. I need help because I don't know how to put this back together again. And in that, there was a quiet voice saying, it's okay. The falling down is okay. I want to pick you up. I want you to get up and go. You see, I believe it was the same voice of the God that Paul heard whisper so gently, my grace is sufficient for you because you are learning that my power is made perfect in your weakness. The voice we hear in the space of true surrender. And finally, finally, for the first time in my life, I just let myself go. I let go of who I thought I was, who I thought I needed to be. I let go of the mask. I gave myself over fully is this being led in a different way? No questions asked. I don't know better than that. And what I found was that in that, I found new life. And it's a story that's probably too long for today. It includes this community. It includes getting counseling for mental illness. It includes finding people who I could share all of myself with and not feel shame because I had discovered what acceptance was, what compassion was, what real grace and forgiveness and the love of remade people felt like. I found the path forward that I can only say was resurrection on the other side of what I thought was death. It was the path of undoing that I believe Paul found, that I believe I found. It's the one that led me to a God whose strength and vision for who I am is far greater than my own. The God that resurrects life from what I tremblingly call death and promises to remake all who come undone if we would just give up enough of our strength to let him. A God whose power is truly made perfect in my weakness. A God that lets me see my weakness in a way that I can truly say I want to boast in. And that is good news. And I want to close, I want to close with a challenge and a symbol for us to begin this new year as a community. And the challenge is this, that together, individually and as a community, we take this year to be what we are called to be as a Kintsugi people. We take this year to truly become people who believe that when we are weak, then we are strong. People who are able to name, heal, and boast in their breaking, their cracks, their scars, because with God's grace, they can be the first steps towards being remade and resurrected new with gold in what we call death. People who truly find new life in the God of power and grace. I want to see us be that people. I want to challenge you to be that people in how you understand brokenness this year. And hold on to that challenge. I want to offer you a symbol for this year. You see, at the front of the stage, we've got four buckets. And in a moment, we're going to ask you to come up to them. In these buckets are broken pieces of clay shards from some pots that we broke. And as this last song plays, 
I want you to come up, and if you're willing, I want you to take one of these broken pieces, and I want you to sit with it. I want you to sit with it, and I want you to reflect. I want you to feel its edges. I want you to feel it in your hand. I want you to hold on to it, and then take it home and name it for what it is in our lives. I want all of us to name it for a place of brokenness that we need to see healed and resurrected and remade this year, whatever that is for you. And you may be someone who knows what that is right off the bat because you were undone last year and you were never put back together again. You might have been undone years ago and never been put back together again, but you know what it is. What would it mean for you to start this new year saying, I want to see that part of me healed, resurrected, remade? And there are others in this room that have a harder task because quite frankly, you know that there is something in your life that you need to see undone and you just have not been willing to see it fall apart yet. And this year, I'm gonna challenge you to let that part of you break so you can see what God does with it on the other side of dying and resurrection. Either way, sit with it, hold it, take it home, reflect on it, name it for what it is, write it on that piece of clay. But there's a catch because you need to hold on to it for a few weeks because we are all actually going to bring these back to this church at the end of this series because this is not just to be a mint as a symbol of our brokenness that we're going to sit around with. We're not just going to name our brokenness and sit with it. That's not the story we've been given. No, the story that we've been given is much better than that. So I want this to be something that's also a reminder of much more, that we are not alone that we do this together, that we are all surrounded by a Kintsugi community comprised of Kintsugi people seeking to be remade together. I want it to be a reminder for all of us this year to reject shame and to move forward, naming our brokenness to find it pieced back together with gold on the other side of resurrection. That is how I want to begin my year. And all I can ask is, as a community, are you interested in coming alongside me? Yes. So, as the song plays, the song that is dear to me, the song that is very much about me, the song about being broken and remade, I invite you to come forward to take the piece of clay I invite you to return to your seats, sit with it, feel its edges, hear the lyrics, name it, and together let's move forward for today as true disciples of Jesus, Kintsugi people longing to be remade. Amen? Amen. Amen.